behavior, bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey, and we are here with episode forty-four. Casey, shut do you the have a front ride? door. <laughs> we're getting <laughs> ready for that. We're getting more and more pathetic as time goes on. Um, quarantine really does seem to be wearing on us. Um, Casey's jokes are getting a lot worse. Uh, I've noticed that as we've been talking all day, every day. I feel but like I'm getting better. I'm on fire. That's the, that's the problem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, but I'm, I'm so excited for today's episode. We, you know, the good silver lining about this quarantine is that people seem to have more time. So we're reaching out to the most famous people. Uh, Matt McConaughey is coming on next week. We have him. We have um, Mila Kunis the next week. We're super pumped. Hopefully you guys will tune We're hashtag blessed. We're so hashtag blessed. They're literally looking for activities to do, and they reached out to us. We thought it was interesting, too, but we're totally down. So here we are. Before we get started, we got to pair ourselves with some reinforcement for ourselves to make us excited to keep doing this. So Casey, go ahead. Give us our review of the day. All right, here we go. Alexis Olivia underscore XO. Title, Lifesaver. This podcast has been a lifesaver. It breaks down the task list in a way that is easy to understand and is a must during my car rides in between clients. Liat and Casey are also the funniest ladies, and this podcast is entertaining for those not in the field. Because of this podcast, I discovered SNABA, and that has changed how I study and has made the exam way less scary. That's awesome. Thank you so much for posting that review. 587 reviews. Holy F. That's insane. I just saw that number. Wow. Guys, we're so incredibly, um, again, hashtag blessed. Title of the episode. Just kidding. <laughs> How um, annoying are we? We're those girls who say hashtag blessed. Like, I'm totally fucking around. Um, but no, kind we of. are excited. Kind of, but we are blessed. We're so thankful. All of you guys who have supported us yeah. and continue to support us. Like, We can't believe that people are picking up on Patreon now during this time to support us. Like we literally, every time someone does that, we message each other and we're like, oh my gosh, we are so hashtag blessed. We're thankful for you guys, honestly, though, all jokes aside. Um, And during this time, we've done a ton. I think the community, the behavior analytic community has just like come together and done some really cool shit. Um, We were lucky to be on the Controversial Exchange podcast um, last week, I think it dropped. And we just like were so obsessed with this guy. We just had we already had one of the guests on in the beginning of our podcast, Ryan O. Um, so we reached out to Dimitri, who we he's our guest today. Um, we'll give a little bit of an intro to him. So he, like we said, he is one of the hosts of the Controversial Exchange podcast, which is awesome. Um, he's also been a BCBA for five years. He has a ton of experience um, with different populations, diagnosis, um, and he does a lot with functional analysis, um, especially um, with like people that have severe problem behavior and might have a high um, verbal behavior repertoire. So we're so excited to have him. He also really likes long walks on the beach, fine wine, um, sci-fi. Um, but enough about that. Let's just bring him on and welcome Dimitri. Hello. Yes, uh, I, I got through episode three of Tiger King. I didn't make it all the way. <laughs> Carol definitely killed her husband, though. There's no effing oh. way she did not. Did you see? I, there's so many there's memes no going way. around. My family has a group <clears throat> text about Tiger King and... Uh, 
what's the, the latest one that they sent about uh, Carol? Oh, um, if you're having husband problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 tigers, fed my husband to one. <laughs> <laughs> there was one where uh, there was one where it was uh, a tiger was uh, taking a shit, and uh, it was uh, it was like, oh, there's Carol, the only remnants of Carol's husband. Oh. Like, it was ruthless, ruthless. I have a one, <laughs> Tony the Tiger. Carol's husband tasted great. <laughs> <clears throat> That's hilarious. Yeah. So, wait, and all the pictures are like, I the, I just find it fascinating the way like different people live in general. It's like, I mean, that's why I love all these TLC shows like My Strange Addiction, this, these people who like that or over here with these tigers. I'm just like, like, why are they filming the guy in the bathtub? <laughs> like, there's all why are they filming about- that guy? Period, dude. <laughs> why don't they like, wear t-shirts or shirts? Why? It's why like, is ugh. the I whole know. thing was so confusing? I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> like, he's a polygamist, but wait, neither one of them are gay. Like, both of his husbands. I'm so confused. I'm just like the whole thing. I was just like, what? No, my mind yeah. was just blown. I'm yeah. still. I'm on like episode. I, I've watched it all, but now I'm watching it again to really like. Oh, I'm on, I'm on team Joe exotic so far. Fuck it. YOLO. (laughs) Yeah. Right. He's being framed. He's being (laughs) framed. He's totally like, this is a making a murderer situation. They totally got him on the wrong. I wish they would do another making murderer. That was so good. Oh, what do you think about that? that? I felt really bad for the kid. Yeah. Cause like, but cause they were like, I think when they, when I saw the thing, like the guy's IQ is 78. Mm -hmm. They were so, my heart rate. Like, yeah, like they're not ugh, educated enough to even make these decisions. So yeah, so uh, I don't know. What else? Put him in jail. Well, guys, I'm sure you're all home watching Tiger King along with us. Um, that's not what we're talking about today, but it is cool to bring that shit up. If only. But um, we are going to talk about the following <laughs> topics, and here is the behavioral principles of the day. All right, they are functions of behavior, a functional analysis. We're going to talk about motivating operations, the philosophical principles, experimental control, experimental design, verbal behavior, reinforcement, stimulus control. And I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot more, but that just gives you a taste. And I'm sure other shit will come up and we'll get into that too. So without further ado, let's talk about whatever we're going to talk about today. Dude, it's all good. Whatever. We'll just see where this where this journey takes us. Well, I will just say real quickly, my husband just texted me. Um, golf courses, guys, are closing down everywhere. So he drove to another state today that is still open. And he just said, now they're closing the ones in Maine effective tomorrow. He just made it in the nick of time. <laughs> one last golf game. Yeah, trying to get that one last round in, huh? Got to get it in. Um, all right. So tell us about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Who the fuck oh, are you? Who the fuck am I? Uh, yeah, are you Matthew McConaughey? Tell me. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm just a, I'm just a behavior analyst, man. I'm 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 a normal person. I I, I work in the field. I started out like I told you guys before. I I, I kind of randomly fell into this work. <clears throat> I met a dude scrubbing a lazy river at the Columbus Zoo doing community service, and uh, we sparked up a conversation, made some friends, and he was like, "Hey, man, you want to get out of what you're doing and work with some kids?" And I was like, "Hell yeah!" Because I was a car salesman and. It was crushing my soul. Yeah. So uh, I took a f- that and I just kind of worked through it. I fell in love with the science. Um, <clears throat> I studied philosophy in my undergrad. So like I like uh, I like the idea. I like I just I, I have like a, a need for some of that because I'm not a metaphysical or superstitious person. So 
Um, and I found that like behavior filled a pretty significant, like philosophical void for me. And, uh, it's just kind of become my obsession in the last 10 years, I guess. Um, so that's, that's who I am. You know, other than that, I'm, I'm a clinic director. I work with severe behavior. Like you said, I, I mostly work, I take the cases that no one else likes to take. Basically. That's kind of like what my <clears throat> specialty is, is that if everything else has failed, usually I'm their last stop before residential. Um, yeah. that's, a big, that's, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. You'd think so. I don't know. I think it's actually, you know, you'd think it is, but I think it's the opposite. It makes it easier because everyone else is fucked up so bad that like, <laughs> what's the worst you can do really? You can't really make it worse at this point. So the yeah. only thing you can do is make it better or just, you know, be another blip on the way to whatever your oblivion, I guess. So yeah, it's all good, but that's well, who I am. A, I guess you have a kid. <clears throat> I do. I do have a 10 month old Ely, uh, married my wife, Autumn. We live here in Columbus, Ohio. He's uh he's the joy of my life. Oh, uh, that's so sweet. I, uh, you're so you're so relatable. I think th- you know I like to think I'm a personable person. <laughs> you know I like to think that like that's what makes me human when I'm doing these types of thoughts. Yeah. Um, you know so yeah I, I, that's it. That's I mean yeah having a kid has been weird. I think I don't I never really saw myself as somebody's father, so that's pretty surprising. But uh, <laughs> I mean for real, like I'm a fucking mess. So I mean like the <laughs> idea that like. This kid's one day going to be like, Dad, what should I do with my life? Like, I don't fucking know. I don't know what I'm doing. But uh, <laughs> scrub pools at that lazy river, kid. <laughs> yeah. 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 Good luck. Got to start somewhere. <laughs> don't go to jail. That's, uh, that's pretty much yeah. all I got for you. That's awesome. Um, so I know that you, um, we had talked a little bit before about um, your work with um, functional analyses and, um, you know, just how, <clears throat> what you're doing. What is your work that you're like doing? Yeah. Right so, uh, so three years ago, almost four now, actually. Oh my God. It's been almost four years. Uh, I had the luxury and pleasure to have, uh, you know, get some very good training in, uh, PFA before it was called that it was called ISCA back then interview informed synthesized contingency analysis. And it was the pre version of it. I think it's evolved. What's a, lot a PFA then. for everyone listening? Practical functional assessment. Duh. So th- that would be Greg Hanley's current work. If anyone's wondering like what the, who the people are that. And we added some of that, that into show notes. We added some of those forms into show notes. So you guys could familiarize yourself Absolutely. with it. Yeah. So, it, and I got, I, I found it so awesome because like I'd worked in a clinical setting forever and I'd been involved in FA, like, cause I said, I've been getting my ass kicked for 11 years. So like I've been involved in a lot of those like high intensity scenarios doing FAs and stuff. And I, I, I stopped doing functional analysis for like ever because I never got a result that was worth a shit. And I just got people beat up or myself beat up and, or <clears throat> created the conditions where someone was hurting themselves for no reason. Um, and just had to always met termination criteria and also always got a diff- undifferentiated result. So, uh, get, getting exposed to ISCA and, uh, learning how to do that was pretty critical in changing the way that I viewed kind of like how we go about our treatment, how do we go about diagnosing behavior problems and, and setting up how we do what we do. So, uh, that was pretty cool. We got to spend, a, you know, a couple of days with Greg Hanley, which was amazing. And it was before he was the most famous person on in behavior analysis. So, um, and it also was the most sexiest. I have to put that in. There. He is pretty <laughs> damn dreamy, isn't he? He's Jeez dreamy. Oh, Pete. Yeah. Greg, you're yeah, that goatee, there's something about that uh <laughs> and that, that salt accent. and pepper and this yeah, <laughs> salt and pepper, Boston accent. Goodness gracious. If that doesn't get my nether regions going, I don't know what does. But um <laughs> Uh, yeah. So it was cool. Uh, and then like, yeah, we, we decided to do a, a practitioner research project. That was a thing. So we're like, you know what, 
Like we do all this really hard work. We do all this cool shit and no one knows about it and no one talks about it. All we ever read about in articles or on the internet is all the cutesy shit people do or all the people that are like, yeah, you know, hardcore restraints are bad or like a high intensity. You can manage everything. You can just out reinforce problems and all that stuff really pissed me off. And like, I never saw anything written about it. So we put together a research project and did that. And it was super fun. And we've been, I've been trying to, I've been doing multiples of those now since. And, and actually as a result, I, I went back to school now and I'm working on my doc, um, in ABA. That's hot. Definitely hot. And by the <coughs> way, he said he's doing it more than once, which would be that hashtag replication. Right, guys, you got to do it more than once to see, you know, we could detect human error. Sorry, for, just got to throw these little shits in here for anyone. Studying. I think it's more scope, scope of practice, too, is the big thing. Like <clears throat> learning a new skill and incorporating it to increase my scope of practice was the big part of that. Because, I mean, up until then, it was just like, you know, really standard fare kind of grab bag shit like DROs, DRAs, basic extinction pr- procedures, lots of neutral redirection paired with a lot of crisis management. Right. So a lot of the normal routine that you see. And I still do a lot of that stuff, but now we do it in a lot more informed way and we have a lot better treatment package that can accompany it because we use a lot of hand least that the ISCA PFA stuff. Um, I don't do quite like I haven't been through a lot of the new trainings that they have now with his new company. They've added a lot of different components of it that are a little more technical, um, in terms of, uh, like a curriculum, cause I like it more in a loose, loose teaching kind of way personally. And that's my comfort level too. So I can't speak to the intricacies of the way they do it now, but I can speak to the, the way that I was taught how to do it and the modifications that I've made to make it work throughout the process. Because I, Cause the other thing too, is that there are limitations to all this stuff. Right. And what was interesting is I got put in a position to start a severe behavior unit for ED kids. Cause I was already running a severe behavior unit, but then we were like, okay, we're getting, uh, I was working in a charter non-public at the time and we were getting a lot of requests from school districts to work with like higher functioning people, which I know that's not a fashionable thing to say, but I'm going to say it, um, higher functioning people, but diagnosed with like emotional disturbance, mood disorders, maybe some pre personality disorder. Cause usually at that age, you can't have a personality disorder diagnosis, conduct disorder, you know, just like your general juvenile delinquent asshole kids, you know, <clears throat> and, uh, there was not general, those things don't really, a lot of the procedures we have aren't designed for them. A lot of the research isn't designed, isn't, hasn't been done with them. And they, they come under the control of a lot of different things like verbal rules that most unsophisticated learners don't have. So, uh, or don't really come under the control of for the most part to anyone listening is going to be a critical dick about it. But, um, (laughs) so yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, that's, that's kind of like where, where I was and what we were trying to pull off and what we've been trying to do. So that that's going to be my dissertation. I'm working on a, on a, like a philosophical piece right now, just to work out the conceptual pieces of it because it doesn't really exist as far as like doing an experimental analysis of behavior for that kind of stuff. So um, where are you finding your subjects? Are, th- are these at your clinic or in my are work. you working It'll be in with my autism? Work. Yeah. It'll be in my work. I work with autism. Yeah. Most of the people have an autism diagnosis too, but they just also have all the other stuff, but that's, yeah, it'll be my clinic, the clinic that I work in. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. very cool. So for <laughs> listeners, could you explain the difference between the isolated contingencies versus the synthesized contingencies like <clears throat> absolutely understand what we're talking about a little bit more. yeah sure so you learn you learn in the, through the task list and through your general training right through your bcba course sequence you know we learn in the white book we learn that there are four major functions of behavior right escape 
uh, denial alone conditions, uh, social mediation or tension, right? And you think about those things in terms of existing singularly. So like certain behaviors are only under the control of escape, only under the control of a denial, only under the control of whatever stimulation you get from being alone. Uh, but in reality, <clears throat> how true really is that? You know, so if we're think, talking about behavior principles, like even something like that, which seems to be a pretty powerful assumption or given that people operate towards, you know, you should express some philosophical doubt towards, which is, you know, I know that I'm live in my world and I'm, I'm constantly moving throughout it. And there's no way that when I'm doing something, I only have a singular motivation that's controlling me. So that's where the notion of synthesis or multiple control or complex contingencies comes into play, which is like the idea that you are not just only functioning singularly or isolated under an isolated contingency. You're functioning in terms of a variety of different things in combination with each other um, <clears throat> under the control of a variety of different contexts and environmental stimuli um, that are that that are conditional to whatever thing might mean at, at any given time. So synthesis is about being controlled by a bunch of stuff and isolation is about being controlled by one thing, basically, if we're going to, if we're going to give the, the cliff notes version of it. So if anyone's <clears throat> listening who is n not in the field of ABA, trust me, these words even sound in intimidating to me, but it's just the idea that, I mean, we really do simplify stuff here on the podcast and we will break it down super. Like we say, everyone's doing something for one of those four functions, which Dimitri's spoke about, right? Like they're doing it for attention, escape, a tangible item, or some kind of sensory component because it feels good. Dimitri is coming in here to let us know that it's deeper than that. I mean, that is a basic understanding, but it's deeper than that for anyone listening in. You know, there's a lot of things are multiply controlled, right? Like we might, I might make a podcast because I like the attention, but I also maybe well, we haven't figured out how to do this yet, um, get some tangibles from it or make money on the <laughs> podcast, right? Uh, There's got to yeah, be multiple not. control. So that's just the idea that Dimitri is speaking about. And by the way, I'm going to let you say all the smart stuff. I'll come in every now and then. <laughs> it's and, not and, smart. I'm just using words. Yeah, no, I'm not trying to talk over anybody's head for sure. And, and No, the, you're the not at all. The, I just... I know yeah. I get intimidated by any of the big words, so I'm just Yeah, yeah. The thing about the complexity, if, if people aren't in the field, it's very simple. Like, there's an assumption that, you know, everything that we do is learned. If you are if you listen to a behavior podcast, you're listening to a, 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 a discussion that assumes that everything that you do is either, like, genetically or evolutionarily created. So, like, it's a product of natural consequences over the time of the history of your species, or, Hashtag phylogeny. Okay. Or it's learned, um, and if it's learned, it happens in your in your in your lifespan, and it has to do with the different types of experiences that you have that shape your responses over time. So um, when we're talking about functions of behavior, we're saying that like the ex the experimentation that's been done up until now says that you can pretty much reduce people down to four possible motivations, um, and what how those and those are the different things that would that control why people do what they do. In reality, it, that's theoretically correct. But if you think about it in terms of practice or just how people live day to day, that's just not the case. Like no one is controlled singularly. That's just nonsense. Like no one, unless you're like a simpleton, which I guess it's just <laughs> the case. Yeah, no, no one is. Exactly. No one, like, is. No one is. When you think of those four, everyone, everyone does something for the four functions, right? It's like, yeah. it mm -hmm. makes it seem very simple. Like, oh, well then that's easy. 
to like, yeah, right. d- you know, determine the function of why people do what they do. But it really is a lot more than that. And um, acknowledging that like, we don't live in a vacuum. Like it's not just like this exactly isolated. Oh my God. I'm, you know, doing this because I want, you know, and a lot of like results that I've seen when I'm um, looking up the traditional um, functional analysis is that the results are typically undifferentiated. Correct. And, yeah. So, yeah. so a couple things. The first thing, uh, another assumption I don't want to lay out there is the idea of non-linearity versus linear thinking. And that, if anyone's interested in doing extra reading on that, you could look up Izzy Gold Diamond. There's a great uh, J- a TV Joe Lang article on Israel Gold Diamond's uh, non-linear thinking. <clears throat> but, um, and it's the idea that uh, basically things come from all over the place and they influence at different levels at different times rather than occur in a vi- nice, neat, clean sequence, like one, two, three, you know, and uh, that's just a- an assumption about behavior. But uh, anyway, back to, uh, so back to FA though, how does all this stuff relate to FA or that kind of thing? Um, when we're talking about functional analysis, we're talking about setting up an experimental condition or experimental process, a uh, procedure to test for what is controlling people's behavior so that we can design appropriate interventions, right? So how do we go in and do our job? How do we change behavior? And how do we do that based on whatever motivation a person has or, you know, whatever function is controlling, whatever stimuli are controlling the behavior in the environment? Um, so there's two different, there's more than two, but there's two primary different kinds. <clears throat> now, since 1982, uh, the dominant one has been what's called the standard functional analysis now, but just functional analysis, where you run people through an experimental procedure where you identify the singular isolated contingency or isolated function like we talked about. So one of those four. And that's done by setting up uh, different conditions for each type. So you would have an alone condition to test for whether or not something is automatic. You would have an attention condition condition to test for that. You would have a, a denial condition condition to test for whether or not it's a tangible thing. Um, you would have a, a work condition to test whether or not it's for compliance or if it's escape. Um, and you would do those on an alternating pattern one at a time. So you can ensure some semblance of randomness and, and uh, balancing for that to, to get some, ex- to be able to demonstrate experimental control over time. And uh, that's, that's been the, what's the gold standard of what we do like yep. forever. I mean, that's been like the thing where if you're doing that, you're performing practitioner science. You're not just being practitioner and or scientists, you know, you're doing both things. You're manipulating <clears throat> now, these conditions, these variables, right. these motivating operations to actually come up with what the function is in uh, a scientific evidence-based way. And that's exactly. what we teach for the task. Yeah. yeah. And we do that through and alternating is just reversals, right? Yep. An alternating treatment design is about building in reversals and reversals we know are the strongest way to demonstrate experimental control. So you can make a justifiable empirical claim if you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so then you're making, you're stating a fact about what you think about a thing rather than like you would get from a conventional descriptive assessment or like an ABC that most people would do, um, which is more correlative. It's correlative and, or it's just, it's, it's, it's relative to whatever was observed in that given instance. And it's subject to a lot of, uh, observer bias because you're really writing a narrative to what you're saying. It's kind of like your hypothesis, right? And now we need to test it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this is how you test it. Yeah. This is how you would maybe test those facts and also how you would give them like substantive evidence to support them as an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's a lot of limitations to the standard FA. 
um, mostly, I mean, the number one is the danger of it. So like when you're setting up scenarios, especially in severe behavior, like I work where, you know, you have people that gouge their own eyes out or, you know, like try to like make themselves bleed, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I've had some uh, severe challenging behavior of like literally like <clears throat> ripping off toenails and fingernails. Exactly. Whenever you tell this yeah. one, Casey, I get so yeah. weak. Maybe yeah. it's because my fingertips fell off. I'm not Yeah, sure, I literally but... have a guy who does that right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's who, so interesting. He, he... I'm like, dude, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so gross. So like, he's like, yeah, I'm going to rip my toenail off. You're going to, and like the thing, is... anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. No, Mr. Dimitri, do you like it when I rip my toenail? <laughs> no, I don't. It's disgusting, dude. <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> clean up the blood overcorrection, you know, or like yeah, yeah. fecal smearing and like just oh, like yeah. really disgusting, nasty shit or like severe that, like, aggression. Like there's certain things that I felt like when I first went in as a BCBA working clinically, I was like, I am ill prepared for this. Like I remember I had a, I had a client. I mean, I think a lot of BCBAs go in like that for a lot of things in general. But one of my first clients, he was like six foot four or something. I'm five, two. He was 23. Like I'd go into his house. He was like, he would break glass. And I know I always talk about this one client, but it was just like, I mean, that was everything. Glass picture frames, glass, also ceramics, like coffee mugs, spices, candles. Oh, yeah. And so that was like one behavior. And, but then like, if you try doing anything with him, like he's huge, super aggressive. So it's like, all right, something's got to change here. Like, I mean, I cannot be, using what I studied for my test that you just put a behavior on extinction, right? Like, yeah, that's not going to work. This yeah. kid's going to yeah, beat the shit out of me. Yeah. So I, I think it's important what you're talking about now in general with these clients that, you know, okay, it's one thing when you're working with a four-year-old, right? And you want them exactly. to, to like sit in the chair. Okay. You're stronger there. You could, you know, or you can move them to the chair. Like when someone's bigger than you, they could scoot you to the chair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, listen, I'm, si I'm six chair. three. <laughs> listen, I'm six three two sixty. Okay, I'm I'm not a little person. All right. Wait, are you really and six three? Yeah, and the first yeah, oh. mm -hmm. and the first you look the much shorter when you sit. Well, thank you. That's nice. <laughs> I'm, just I like, I'm compact, <laughs> stocky, <laughs> like Joe. a cannonball. But um, <clears throat> like the first day I did this work, so like I got a week's worth of training, and then I was put two on one with a thirteen year old that uh was the real deal. And I don't know what the fuck, I mean, literally the a week before that I was a car salesman. So like I was selling Toyotas, like eight days ago I was selling Toyotas. So I mean like not, not well prepared. Right. And, uh, in the first day, this kid lifted me off my feet against the wall and he's 13 pinned me. And like, it took six people to get him off. So like that was, that was my first kind of like getting broken into the field. And then it just kind of went from there because again, when you're a direct care person and you're a big, big person, they're like, well, you know, meet for the grinder, baby. Let's go like, good luck to you. So like, I got like if they find a male and they find a male who's big, they're like, you're hired. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Worst yeah. Case like, don't, don't worry. I don't care. I don't care if you were giving specs on a RAV4 yesterday. RAV4. <laughs> exactly. Like we'll take you. <laughs> the RAV4, that's great. Uh, Speaking nice. of which, what do you think about them? I'm just kidding. I own one. I own one, actually. You do? I was yeah, my wife owns one, actually. And the one. Nissan Rogue. Okay, but. <laughs> <laughs> whatever your preference is. Uh, whatever floats preference your boat. Preference assessment. Man. I know. Okay. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, so, yeah, no. For the intense kids, it's, I mean, you have to have a good game plan. You have to know what you're doing. And it's just best practice to be able to have something more than uh, the simple stuff. Because, honestly, a lot of the time when shit really starts hitting the fan and things start getting intense, like, it's because a lot of the normal stuff has failed. 
you know, or it's just so strong and powerful that you can't kind of weigh through the extinction burst. Like technically extinction would be applicable. Technically, some of these things would work if given the amount of time and effort to let them happen. But the thing with an extinction procedure, for example, like you have a burst and if the dude is 6'4", 270, you know, middleweight champion of the world, like that's not exactly heavyweight champion of the world. That's uh, that burst is going to be pretty big. So you have to have things in place and ideas and, and plans that, that are, are more tailored. So anyway, so yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of where my background is too. Like why I, I majored in all this stuff and why I do it. Um, so that's what standard FA is. <clears throat> so now you have a bunch of different other kinds of FA. We talked about FBAs already briefly, um, descriptive assessment, but so an alternative. So what I got exposed to and what I learned and why I like, I, I like fell in love with it and it literally changed the way that I, it changed my entire career. Honestly, like I, I credit, you know, I, I credit that encounter with Greg Hanley, uh, almost four years ago now. And all that stuff changed the way I do my practice, the way I think about behavior, the way I argue about it, the way I talk about it, the what, part of why I do my podcast, the way I do it. Um, is, was that, and that was, uh, the, the notion of assuming multiple control and setting things up in such a way where you're targeting skills that make sense. <clears throat> Cause another major shortcoming of standard functional analysis, aside from the danger is that it's just diagnostic. Mm-hmm. It just gives you a result. It just says, yep, here's the function or nope, no, dif- no differentiation, no identifiable function. Like it doesn't Woo-hoo! have Great. any, yeah, good work. Yay, glad it. we did that. Yeah. Targeted, triggered all those horrible behaviors to come yeah. up with nothing at all. But now what do we do with it? So right. what was nice is that they have a nice, neat treatment package that followed it. And that was a, a positive thing. So, um, uh, let me describe, you guys want me to describe what, what a PFA looks like or what it looks like. Again, this is yes. the rudimentary original version of it. I don't know what modifications have been made since. Cause I haven't sat through that new training. Don't worry. Do. Casey's teacher's pet. She sat through a conference recently. So, <clears throat> yeah, she'll so be I'll, sure to- I'll be sure to correct you. Cool. Cool. Correct me if I'm wrong here. <laughs> so the way it works. So the general process of the way I like to teach it is this, is that first and foremost, rather than focusing on a particular topography or basic topography, you identify what's called a behavioral event. And what I mean by that is taking something from beginning from the most precursory point at all. Like if someone's got a certain kind of twitch or body rock or whatever, all the way up to the deescalating parts where they're ramping back down and everything in between. So one giant event. So like what would, what that, what would make the whole thing look like a count of one from up to down? You take that and I like to do like you divide it into low intensity and high intensity then so that you can kind of get some differentiation, but that's for the technical stuff later. Now, once you have your behavioral event, you conduct what's, you conduct a structured clinical interview. So you go through, there's a, there's a detailed questionnaire that you can get for free on practical functional assessment.com. But, um, I, at this point I like to, just I put it in show notes. I put it in show notes <clears throat> wonderful. Um, for me, it's more just like, I, I just like to sit down and have a conversation with people and just kind of like dig, dig through the information I need. Um, I don't really, it doesn't have to be a super formal process. It's kind of informal because everything else should be informed from what you're seeing yourself and what kind of observations you've done. And you do what's called, you put together your fun box as a result of that. Now, why do you do all that stuff? Because when you're looking at behavior that's synthesized, so you're looking at multiply controlled behavior. And you're talking about setting up a thing that's about exerting experimental control over it. You're not going to get experimental control over singular functions. So you're really only looking for two, one single, one relationship. Can you make the behavior happen? And can you make the behavior stop on and off? Um, 
Now, the hashtag non-parametric, non-parametric analysis. Uh, is that what it is? I don't know. You tell me. Is that a non-parametric yeah. analysis? Oh, mm-hmm. wow. There you when go. You something new today. There you go. Perfect. Like the so, non is like on. Get it? Uh, on, off. Okay. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. Uh, I'm annoying. So, yeah. No, you're not annoying, dude. It's just, saying uh, the, the thing is you need to turn the behavior on and off is what you were saying. Yeah, you need to turn the behavior on and off. So you set up your conditions like that. So then once you have your fun box, which is supposed to be kind of like your on and off button, right? And um, then you set up your conditions and you run them across a control and a test. And a control is unfettered access to the thing so that you keep them in an off position so the problem behavior is not occurring. And then the test condition is about setting the EO in place, which would be your fun box and also your presence potentially too. Because they're, as the person administering this analysis or this assessment, you need to be present as a, as a possible attention component. So you would either withhold your attention and that kind of thing just to make it kind of like a whole drama to like trigger the event. And then once you get the event, uh, you give them access, you turn it off, and then you alternate those conditions. Usually it goes control, test, control, test, test, control. <clears throat> 25, 30 minutes, um, five minutes each, boom, you're done. And what you're looking for is off on control and on on test. And then that gives you that differentiation or that separation between the data that tells you whether or not it's working or it's not. And whether or not that you, you've you demonstrated that you can control what's happening. Um, and then you shift your, and then you can use that information a lot more functionally in practice to move into um, how you're going to do treatment. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. How you're doing treatment. Yeah. And uh, I'll just add to that a little bit from what I um, listened to when I went to Greg Hanley's. Uh, his new company, they did a conference in my area. Um, and he referred to those conditions as Dimitri refers to as uh, um, control and test. Um, the control um, would be the reinforcement. You're in reinforcement, right? You're yeah. on the floor with them. You're in the a nice uh, kind of, you're on their same level. You're not yeah, exactly. threatening. You're, oh, here you want this. Woo, attention, you want that? Like, I'm just cool as shit. Play with me. I'll play with you. And then you move from that to your EO, right? The establishing operation where it's like, now shit's going to get real and you have to um, comply with my demands, whether it's come to the table and let's do DTT or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, but you're taking away whatever, you know, things that you've come up from your interview, right? Mom's like, he does this every time I take his iPad away. What do I do, right? Yeah. And I was like, all right, done with the iPad time. To, and then you stand up. You're now this establishing operation. You are over them. Um, you're kind of this, like, not scary person, but, like, you're you're differentiating the conditions. So Absolutely, you're no longer yeah. friendly. I mean, you're friendly, but you're no longer You're like, neutral. No, you're, yeah, neutral. you're neutral. You're even a little domineering. You're a lot more stern, instructional, right? It's yeah. really about getting that instructional. It's like delineating between teacher voice and like mom voice. Right. So when you like for, uh, you know, for the recommendations for this, like you're creating a clear reinforcement condition and a clear establishing operation condition. So, um, you know, like whether it's, you know, the table, you're going to the table. That's a table of high expectations, as Greg Hanley refers to it, like. You're here to like work. And you also want to make the play or reinforcing um, condition also easy to discriminate. Like you've got all the shit you want. Woohoo. Like, here we go. And then being able to discriminate. They're now learning how to discriminate between what condition that they're in. Um, and also positioning yourself in a way that like, if there are going to be problem behaviors in that establishing operation condition, maybe there's a table between you. Maybe you're on the other side. Maybe, you know, whatever it may be. Um, how do you con- how do you conduct yours? Like if something if shit hits the fan, like you're trying to reinforce that first. I behavior. terminate, bro. Like the thing yeah. is, is that like with my guy, and that's a thing. Like 
Uh, what's funny is that, uh, you know, we talked all this shit, but even when, uh, Greg came out to do it with us, we actually got an undifferentiated disco with him because we had a kid oh, wow. that was like confounding. So, I mean, like the, the thing is, is that like, it, it's still, you still sometimes can get an undifferentiated result just because like kids might just trigger and go from zero to hundred. And then once they, You've once the behavior them. occurs, there's no off button for certain things. Right. So it's more about identifying that precursory stuff. And that's why going back to like, why you want to define a be- behavioral event. Part of the whole thing is that like, again, and this also what distinguishes it from a standard functional analysis is that you're not looking to trigger the behavior all the way. Mm-hmm. You're just looking for some occurrence of the behavior within the response class of the, of the things that you've identified that indicate that this is creating the conditions that will lead to problem behavior. Yes. Okay. And then once you see that, you're giving access to turn it off really fast um, to cool down the scenario. And then you're constantly resetting it within that five minute time. So that's another big distinction between it is that once your five minutes is rolling on a test, that doesn't mean that like your job now is to be as irritating as humanly possible so that it occurs for five straight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that's not what you're looking for. What you're actually looking for is individual instances of precursory behavior without it potentially escalating so that you can keep it from deteriorating into a complete shit show, um, but still get the data that you're looking for. And what's um, so important with this, I just want to say this while it's on my mind, yeah. is that... Um, we think about our RBTs, our direct support that we're throwing into these situations, right? If we as BCBAs are not doing our job like this, right? Determining how to turn a behavior on or off, right? Right. It is unfair to send them into a six foot three kid who's going to be the totally shit out agree. of them. It is important to be like, hey, when he does this first behavior of rocking, all right, here we go. Like that's going to lead because we know the cycle and we see this we need to step in there and reinforce right then. And then, then we start interventions, right? How are we going to work on this? But we don't want them to get to this level of um, you're, they're so lost. They've lost all control and they're just going nuts. We cannot do yeah. anything during that time. Exactly. Get out of there and like keep them you know, safe. The best, the best uh, resource for kind of understanding what you're saying right there is uh, this thing. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Merrill Winston because this is a, a PCM thing, but uh, which is professional crisis management. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of like his crisis intervention system. It's a thing called the crisis continuum. And it distinguishes between, and, and it, it puts behavior on like a bell curve, right? Where you have the bottom of the tail, the first part of the tail is stable responding. So under stable responding, you know, your blood pressure is normal, you're calm, you're receptive, you're logical, you're ra- wow. rational, you're reasonable, you know? And as, as, as behavior starts to escalate, you get into a thing called pre-crisis, So like in pre-crisis, your heart rate might start to elevate a little bit. You might be a little bit short. You haven't totally lost your shit, but you're annoyed. You're irritated, right? You're you're showing all those signs. And then you hit crisis, which would be the top of the, of the, um, the bell curve. And that's where you've like completely lost it. You're irrational. You're mad as hell. Like you're not receptive. And then like the idea is put yourself in that situation and be able to explain kind of like, okay, are you receptive when you're red, red, red with rage? Absolutely not. That is not a learning opportunity. It's not an instructional time, right? So the idea is to maybe take it to pre-crisis or right before pre-crisis and then turn it off so that you never have to get to that top of the hill. Um, And then whatever downslope happens as a result. Yeah. And it's really important, again, just because we're putting people in positions going into homes, you know. Oh, dude. (laughs) And that's the thing, like the thing is like, and and that's for me in my work, like why this was so important to me at the time is because 
I felt like for a lot of years, I was like a lamb and set out to the slaughter. Like I worked with, I worked with some good BCBAs before I became a BCBA. Like that's not, I'm not trying to say that they were incompetent or anything, but they definitely didn't do now looking back their due diligence in a way where they had good explanations and good interventions that would keep people actually safe. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just more like, all right, like here's our intervention. You're a big dude. So you're going to get the shit kicked out of you. And then I'm going to blame you for having to use a physical intervention or something like that. And because you didn't do all the things you were supposed to do to make it not happen, which in a lot of cases is impossible, especially when we're talking about people with mental health disorders on top of whatever developmental disability they have. Like mood disorders are tricky. Like if someone's going to be able to switch how they're feeling on a dime, right, and go from zero to 100 really fast, it's really hard for preventatives to necessarily be effective in that situation. Or in order for you to be able to be preventative for it, you have to be so preventative, it's impossible to fucking get anything done. Yeah. So it's like, pick your poison. Like, do you want me to do shit? In which case I should have something worthwhile to do so I can protect myself and the person. Or do you want me to just be their play friend and not actually do my job? Because otherwise I'm going to get the shit kicked out of me and I'm going to come to you and then you're going to blame me for it. Yeah. So that's a big like, fuck you. Like, no. Mm-hmm. So um, that was that's a big reason why it matters. And, and I think why it's important. <clears throat> so that's another big distinction. Also to, you know, let your clients know that their behavior is po- like they have power, right? That's control. Like, so their behavior, you know, matters by, okay, hey, we see you. We hear you. Gotcha. Heard. That has power. And that's a big thing that he talked about, too, is letting oh, them Oh, big know. time. Yeah. That's, that's the big distinction between it, actually. That's a great point. So here's the thing. Like, when, you're, when we're doing our interventions a lot of time, we're not thinking about our clients as people, like, as autonomous thinking people, right? We think of them as people. I don't think anyone's like, oh, this is not a human. Like, it's more like we don't think of them as people with their own ability to make decisions and choices about what they want for themselves necessarily. Okay. At least in every way that we design what we do. So when you have a situation where you're running them through some experimental conditions that don't are unrelated to each other are completely with no context and are just literally designed to piss them off because that's what you're trying to measure how mad they get under whatever thing you're putting. And then you're confused on why it becomes explosive. Like you're kind of a moron. Like you're not thinking straightly. Like that's, that's a stupid thing. We're on the inverse of that. If you set up a test where it's like part of the whole thing is to get them to exhibit an early sign, which is also kind of communicative. All right. So it's it's potentially instructional, right. Even in the context of the assessment, You are empowering them to tell you to set a boundary and tell you when to fuck off, like and doing it in such a way that doesn't lead to total explosivity. Mm -hmm. And that's the big that's the big difference. And actually, it becomes more and more. And this is this is a thing that it's important no matter who you're working with, but it becomes more and more important, the more sophisticated the learner you're working with. And that's the, the number one thing that I've found you know, start working with more sophisticated learners is that they desire more control because that's actually the function of their behavior. You know, the, the, the complexity of their behavior is more about exerting control over the people, places and things, you know, which is is a combination of attention, denial and escape and, and self-satisfaction. Haven't they thought about you know? adding that in? <clears throat> In, in some research articles, there, there's there's a debate about whether or not control is a function. And I would say control is a is a, is a multiple function. It's a complex array of things. And it depends like there's a so if you look at a, there's a 
one of the articles, the one of the original articles that Jack Michael wrote on MOs, uh, it's actually Jack Michael on motivating operations, 1982 for the folks out there, um, would be, uh, he, he quotes a thing called signs of damage as a function. And actually, since I learned about signs of damage, that's been my obsession is figuring out how to diagnose signs of damage experimentally, because there isn't anything for that. And what signs of damage as a function is that I am reinforced by the emotional and or physical pain that I cause another human. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as a as a thing that, that 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 sets the occasion for my behavior you know and if you think about that i mean that's what sociopaths are to do that's that's i mean that's what a lot of that's what manipulative behavior is that's what you know emotional abuse is it's tied to that's what a lot of the stuff that that's what a lot of complex people with conduct disorder personality disorder mood disorder that's a lot of what their behavior looks like it's a signs of damage function you know so and when you have a when when the gold standard of your field is only set number one to diagnose four basic functions and is not sensitive to multiple control, or if it's sensitive to multiple control in terms of like, it identifies multiple control, but doesn't give you a kind, right? Or a type of, of the, of what that combination may look like or subcategories even, um, you're, you're incredibly limited in your scope and what you're actually able to intervene on. Cause like, for example, attention, not all attention is equal. I, I may not like, like, it's not about like attention isn't just about someone being present and someone not being present. I could be explicitly acting out and engaging in confrontation seeking in order to get corrective attention. I want to see the rise that I get out of you. I want you to tell me how bad I am there. So the reinforcer isn't just you giving me attention. The reinforcer is you telling me how bad I am while you're giving me attention, right? Specifically attention, that yeah. kind, that problematic, corrective attention, mm -hmm. you know, that's a subcategory. There's nothing in that standard FA that tells you to identify a subcategory of attention. But I mean, like it's a lot more informative as a practitioner to understand a subcategory of a thing so that you can actually program to that rather than just fucking classifying it all as one big fucking huge thing. Right. right? Like as if it's all built the same or it's all equal and it's not. Like it'd be the so, way you pitch um, your voice. The pitch of your voice is like that. Exactly. Type of attention. Like if I'm just neutral like this, or if I'm like, Hey buddy, like exactly that totally condescending different. shit triggers uh -huh. stuff too. That's another thing. Oh that, yeah. That, that, I can't stand the cutesy oh shit. Oh my God. A, I totally like that. Yeah. I, I always that. say that. I always say that in my classes. I'm like, if you're that person being like, good job, like <laughs> stop, like stop. Big time, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Don't like if do someone said that to me, Bad. I'd be like, and fuck off. Like <laughs> exactly. as soon as someone spoke to me like that, it's like, listen, I'm older than you. I am like, and you're, you know, like a lot of these. And a lot of, I work, like my main work has been with adults, right? Some that are 20 years older than me. Yeah. With, like with autism. And yeah, I, and we hire these like, you know, 20 year old new grads and that's the year. I'm just so happy to work with kids. <laughs> right? you know, I, get, I, <laughs> I mean, we love it. Like, they want to work with adults because like not a lot of people do, but like, yeah. it's like, you got to change your way. Like there, you got to respect them and give them dignity. And no, there's no like, and the rules are different. You can't yeah. prompt a grown up. Uh -uh. What's that journal article? The right have rights. <laughs> prerogative to take naps and eat donuts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a great article. <laughs> yeah, it good. Cause um, it's true, man. I did. I ran an adult service for eight months, nine months. I had to quit. Cause it was like, it drove me fucking crazy that all I could do was set up a visual schedule and hope they followed it. Cause if they decided to sit down and jerk off for the next six hours, I just had to let them do it. <laughs> I was like, a clinical like, director for six <clears throat> months. Like, what and, am yeah. I doing? I was like, nope, moving oh out of that God. now. We're done yeah. with adult services. No, thanks. Yeah, totally. Um, um, the other thing that um, I wanted to bring up that I think is really important is that um, when we, we want lucid learners Greg Hanley talks about this, like you want that fire inside of them. And a lot of people I've worked with are on a ton of medications and they are like, 
drugged up, right? Let's yeah. just give them all these seizure meds, all these mood stabilizers, and they come and they're passing out, right? Yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. hard to conduct an, a functional analysis when they're like sure. sleeping. You can't. So I like, think he would yeah. be. A, I think that he's a lot more anti-med than I am. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I mean, obviously, Greg Hanley is like absolutely like I, I would be like a minor league player trying to talk about Michael Jordan, just to be clear. OK, <laughs> like I'm not like so. I mean, any critique that I would have should be taken with a grain of salt in comparison. But like what I would say is that like drugs do help. Drugs matter. Drugs are helpful. Drugs aren't totally bad. They're just bad if they're misapplied, misused and over over given over over prescribed. Um, because they can set the occasion to make someone more receptive, especially if you have hair trick people that, that operate from a hair trigger, like it does help. And like you should, that's a big area that a lot of people aren't as informed as they should be, especially for what we do, because we compete in a psychological mental health space. So like, it's really critical to your scope as a practitioner to get, get on psychopharmacology and understanding like how those things influence where they matter, what drugs are, what, what drug cocktails are out there? How are they prescribed? You know, not necessarily when you get into nitty gritty, like dosages and stuff, but understanding drug interactions, understanding the the different types of like old versus new antipsychotics, understanding what a benzodiazepine is and, and like really understanding what those different, different things are that people are on because they are helpful. You know, that's my are. strength. That's my strength. I know about all these meds. I've taken all of them. <laughs> Recreational. What? <laughs> no, I've snorted snor- Xanax before this shit, man. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, like, I know. I'm it. popping Depakote like it's fucking candy. <laughs> what is I, am... I don't even know what that is. Wait, that it's one a, I don't know. Mood, mood stabilizer. Oh, that one so I don't know. Also, it's like for bipolar people. You know what else is really freaking important for us to know? Not only these side effects, what they could interact, blah, blah, blah. But like when you're communicating with parents, when you go into a home, like what were they given today? Sometimes I'd go in and they'd be like, oh, I gave them their night times or like, I know. or like yeah. I double dosed them this morning on ADHD. Oops, sorry. And it's like, see, that's, those are the one, that's the one category of drugs that drives me crazy. Like I wish that I don't understand why you give, like I get why they do it, but like I've never had a kid where if you prescribed them fucking cocaine, they didn't lose their shit. Like, <laughs> right. duh. Like here's so meth fucking, and let's just so, hope you don't freak so like out. You should know that ADHD medication that's like the stimulant kind is is methamphetamine. Like it's 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 the primary ingredient to meth. Right. Like it's a thing. Like like it's fucking cocaine. It's prescription cocaine. So I mean, like yeah. if someone's right. a like if you speedy, already have someone who's be aware like of that. obsessed with order and OCD, like. <laughs> I get it. As someone who has no OCD, I'm on Adderall and I'll like find myself like cleaning my washing machine with a toothpick. And I'm like, what <laughs> <That's the fuck?" laughs> I'm like, wow, I didn't know soap gets stuck in this little corner. And I'm like, I have to be like in a focused setting when the meds kick in. Like, I don't want to be like accidentally taking my laundry down there when it kicks in. That's great. You know? But I- I've also I mean, what I've seen that medication could actually I mean, this is just obviously opinion could be really helpful in a treatment package. I think if used correctly, if we work hand in hand with other professionals, you know, like I think a lot of people become assholes and I think a lot, ABA gets a lot of bad names because like, no, 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 stop your speech therapy. We could do that. No, 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 no. Stop any of your ADD or your depression meds. We could do that. No, no, no. Right. And it's like, no, dude. Like even when I like left college for a semester, I was super depressed. I came home got on medication and I did like CBT therapy. I remember the one thing that I was like this outpatient thing. Um, and this was all of our college breakup. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I just, 
I remember them talking about the importance so quickly of a treatment package, you know, like, you know, it's not just about taking your medication or just about doing the therapy. It's like the whole thing. So I think our responsibility as behavior analysts is to look into what other treatments are they getting? I mean, granted, maybe I'm not the one professional or, you know, um, has the background to be prescribing medications, but just to like, like you said, have that awareness. So we're working hand in hand because what we could do is really powerful, but it doesn't mean that we, it's not limited. It's limited. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not always going to in the, in the bounds and the limitations that we have practically in the world, you know, cause unless we can be totalitarian, you know, like hunger games level control over people, like there are, there are limitations of what we can do in practice. Right. Um, because we have so many confounds happening at any given time. Uh, dude, the best education I had in, in throughout my career <clears throat> was the f- three and a half years I spent going to, cause I worked at an agency where we did also, we provided med management and stuff too, where I could, I would go and sit in the psych appointment with the psychiatrist. I built a relationship with the psychiatrist, not psychologist, psychiatrist, mm-hmm. right. And got to learn, you know, from them kind of the intricacies of, of what they're doing. And, and I think one realization that I came to is that like, when we say people are practicing medicine, like they're fucking practicing. Like it's not an exact science, especially when we're talking about all these drug cocktails and that kind of thing. <clears throat> so that's a big thing that, you know, knowing, getting to know someone and, and participating in that process is pretty helpful. I think what you're trying to get at, Liat, uh, was like it's about a being holistic in what you're doing and like looking at trying to provide a, a comp- comprehensive 360 wraparound service and uh, diagnosis and understanding of what's going on, conceptualization of the behavior, rather than trying to look for like these, like the, the silver bullet that's going to solve your problem. I, I think just if- see that a lot. I see it a lot. And like I see behavior analysts like get into argument with like psychiatrists or like speech therapists, like, no, 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 stop your speech with them. Like, we'll work well, on speech verbal is fine. behavior. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're yeah, allowed to touch I, it to I, speech therapist. And OTs. Speech, I'm a little bit. OTs are magic. I'm a little, um, <laughs> no, but it like it, it, I even think of myself. It's like if someone was telling me all these behavioral CBT strategies to use, right? Someone's like, hey, identify your thought as a fact or as a, you know, yeah. a fiction, whatever it is. It's like, dude, tell me to do all these strategies. I couldn't do shit unless until I was like on these medications that like, yeah, you know, I was in a better place to do it. I don't know. I just, no, I mean, I I'm a like huge advocate back, of ABA. Yeah. Bringing it back to like. Just, you know, it doesn't, yeah, medication, medication, but having a lucid learner, you need like. Yeah, you do have to have someone do. who's present because uh, honestly, they can be totally doped up and drugged out and just like totally and maybe they need the medicine to be lucid. And soulless, you know, and that's the other thing too. Like you don't want to kill a person's soul, man. Like that matters, no. you know, and you want to make sure that you're contributing to enriching their life rather than putting them in a position where they're just pliable and compliant. Yes. You know, a lot of people see their job as like creating these conditioned learners where, you know, they're perfect responders. But the thing about the level of perfection that you get from that is that it's an unreasonable expectation because you don't have that. You don't have that. No. Your kids don't have that. Typical developing children don't have that level of expectation. Why would we put that on a person with a developmental disability? You're fucked up if that's how you think. Or if you haven't even thought about that being the side effect of it, like you should pause for a second and reflect on that. Because, I mean, that's where that's what autonomy is about. It's about being able to make decisions that are reasonable within a particular timeline as appropriate to the circumstances presented to you. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that all the way. The lucidity does matter. 
Um, I just, the reason I interjected before is just because sometimes a lot, what I see in the discussion on, on like BCBA forums and stuff is that they take it all the way to the extreme where it's like now drugs are completely wrong, like bad and not mm-hmm. appropriate. And I, I, I disagree with that just generally like balance and everything, man, moderation and everything like that. That yeah. should be your approach when you're trying to think of things and, and how it's to, also how, to how you're using work. it. Like I had a parent, exactly. ever, the, the, the breaking glass adult who I worked with every time he'd start getting in any behaviors or pacing his mom would give him Benadryl and like Motrin or something my aunt like, used to do that <laughs> it's like my every ass? time they act up no, it's like give Benadryl, them Benadryl. Bro. it was uh, that was her intervention for nap time it's like uh mom needs to do some uh, some work uh, you look like you're having an allergic reaction here come here it's time for your Benadryl babies guess what that <laughs> like, does negative reinforcement right like, now she, her uh, she's like Oh man, that's removed. I'm gonna do totally that again. Just bus rolled her. Hopefully, uh, she's old now. Her kids are grown. It's fine. With you know, this coronavirus, all the parents are out of the stores are out of Benadryl. More Dude, than- I've totally thought about it. I'm not. I haven't done it, but I've totally thought about. It. I'm like, you know, this kid looks like he ate some shellfish. Maybe we should. Uh, <laughs> did you get into some fish somewhere? Like, what's wrong with you, kid? <laughs> you need fuck a nap. Toil- like fuck toilet. Fuck toilet paper. Fuck that's toilet right. paper. I could wipe my ass with my shirt. Benadryl, exactly. on the other hand, that shit cannot live without it. I love it. I love it. And um, I think that that is really important is to remember what you just said. Like um, they are people we are, we work, we work with people. That's what we do. Human behavior. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I think this is a great talk um, to kind of break down a topic that is, I think, confusing to a lot of people, especially people who are studying for their exam or just trying to understand this shit in general. Um, Well, yeah. FA is one of those things. that's like, it's mysterious and it's also a thing everybody wants to do. Yeah. Like I like when I think about again, when I was coming up initially and like I was learning all this shit and, and like when you learn this stuff, it's like a superpower, man. It's like you it's like learning how to be a Jedi, like for real. Like you yeah. you can like these are not the droids you're looking for, like for real. And so I mean like you get to the point where you know, you, you learn how potent the science is, you're hungry for it. And then you want to get to the point where you're doing all the cool shit where you can like show that you're, you're a data tracker and that you're analytic and you're all that other stuff. But then you really don't have a lot of people who are setting a good example. Like really who the fuck does standard FAs? Like, let's cut the shit. Like look yourself, look in your soul, be totally honest. Like uh, how many have you done? Like up until that three or four years ago, I had done maybe 10. And that was like on the high end of most of the people that I knew who had been doing this for a long time. So, I mean, like if you've only done 10 of a thing over the course of your career, and that's not really enough for you to claim that number one, you're doing experimental work. That's like substantive, but number Mm -hmm. two, that like you're actually competent in a particular skill either, which for something like this is pretty dangerous. So like having a more simplified procedure like PFA or SCA, I mean, I think is, is another benefit to that because the complexity of how to do FA is all over the place. Like how do you set up the conditions? How do, resources are real too, right? Like an average standard FA is going to take, <clears throat> I would say on the low end, four to six hours, yeah. maybe more like 10 to 12. Well, if you're working in a situation where you're in a bill and kill environment, you're trying to pay the bills and you got an X amount of opportunity or hours allocated to you and you need 10 to 12 hours to do a thing. And not only that, you also need three to five people to be able to run it. Okay. That's three to five people's worth of productivity. That's three to five people's worth of resources. That's three to five people's worth of time that you have to get what you need to get done. And when, when four out of nine times, five out of nine times, it's brings a null result. 
you've been extinguished, which is why people don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, They're that's the reality of it. too from like schools or parents. Exactly. Like, hey, I want to go in and trigger this behavior because I, I, I'm so cool. I'm a behavior analyst and I can just totally do this. So let's trigger exactly. it. Parents like, no. Like, so it's, it's hard yeah. to get the buy-in, but I like the way the PFA kind of changes that, right? Exactly. Like, no, it's- we're going to actually, uh, I know it goes against what we always say. Don't reinforce the behavior you don't want to see, but like, we're going to, you know, step in and like kind of give them what they want when they engage in these low level behaviors before we get to crisis. Cause we can't come back, you know, we can't do any treatment during crisis. Um, and then it has kind of like a shape down effect too. Like it's just, it's logical, man. It shapes, it's like, it shapes the behavior down towards the, 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 the replacement, the alternative and zeros. Like it diminishes the MO man. It, it diminishes the internal desire a person has to engage in a particular thing. Isn't that what you want? Yeah. Like that's addressing the root of the problem. That's targeting something at the core rather than trying to find the ancillary bullshit that is our accompaniments or byproduct of that thing. Yeah. So that's another thing, too, is that it targets the root of the problem rather than trying to look at the various individual environmental things that you'd have to list out, which are potentially infinite, mm-hmm. especially when you start getting into things like, you know, when we're talking about, for example, like medical necessity, right? Like, how do we justify our services? Well, we justify it through medical necessity. What's the easiest way to justify something through medical necessity for a person with autism? Well, that's writing goals that address rigid, repetitive, ritualistic behavior. OK, well, rigid, repetitive, ritualistic behavior is uh, pretty much. Anything that has to do with stereotypy, obsessive behavior, rigidity. I mean, like you name it, you see a lot of that shit, right? But what we're really talking about is what is the reinforcer for rigid, repetitive, ritualistic behavior? It's the satisfaction they get for engaging in the thing. Yeah. Okay. Completing it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, then like your number one should be able to diagnose that and be able to identify it. And number two, if you're trying to improve how they are in relation to that particular problem. You're trying to diminish their desire to engage in that. So your procedure should produce a result that diminishes that desire. And that's mm-hmm. a, that's MO manipulation. That's, that's what you're trying to do. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a good point that you brought up. That's definitely an excellent point. I think about like with my husband too, just like thinking this of like a, a normal everyday, you know, I know there's certain behaviors that I engage in, like not pulling my yoga pants right side out when he does laundry. He does laundry, which is amazing. <laughs> but if, wow. if one leg's inside out, like I know that triggers him, right? So like I try to like create these like, oh, Casey, remember to do this. But like, again, I'm not going to like, or if, you know, I'm being annoying about like, hey, can you do this or giving him demands, right? And I see like, he's a ginger and he's like, I can see when he's starting to be like, I don't want him to get to crisis, right? I don't want us to be in this level of like fighting. So like, because I ginger crisis. You've ever seen like he ginger snaps. He doesn't snaps. Even have a soul either. So like, that's even worse, right? He might go straight up uh, Macaulay Culkin, good son on you, and you're yeah. hanging from a fucking cliff. Oh god, that's no that good. movie. Holy, that's shit. the last thing you need. I just had a huge flashback to that crazy movie. So I'm like, I'm you know, I'm gonna like kind of at that moment, like, hey, but good job. Um, you know, thank you for doing those dishes, whatever it may be. Just like, let's bring it way back down here. Like, I see him starting to be like. He does this little like weird kind of like breathe in heavy, like, yeah, and like breathe out like a big sigh. And I'm like, oh, Casey, like, don't push it. Don't you push it. And it's not like he's going to like do anything crazy, but you know what I'm saying? Like, just yeah. relate it to your normal life. I know, like, man. That's funny. I go like, oh, hey, oh, I like your hair looking good today. Nice way you put that <laughs> gel in. Looks sweet. Let's swipe over. Like, whatever I can do. Um, oh, yeah. But so, yeah, it's definitely that. Um, so, I'm just looking in the chat. Alan, Alan uh, (laughs) he just hopped on and he wrote in the chat, when my wife leaves her yoga pants inside out. (laughs) Kills me. Holy shit. Yeah, it kills me. (laughs) It's a 
real thing, apparently. I didn't even. I don't even think about it. But uh, man, now I, I will. I, yeah, I'm definitely not. Con- my wife does the laundry. I'm definitely not conscientious about that. <laughs> Dimitri's like, I don't even know she... what you're talking about doing laundry. But... <laughs> <laughs> no. no, I do stuff. What are you talking about? I do stuff. Come All on. right. Super cool. All right. Let's wrap this up for the day. This was really okay. fun. And thank you for coming on. Of course. Thank you. Really appreciate it. It was great. As always, guys. And it, by the way, before I say what I'm going to say, if you have made it all the way to the end of this episode, we're going to add in a little COVID-19 song written by our former student, now BCBA, Kara Welsh. She has written an entire behavioral perspective song of COVID-19. So we'll add that to the end here. But thank you guys for tuning in. You know where to find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast, Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast, or BehaviorBitches.com. You can support us at our Patreon.com slash Behavior Bitches for as low as $2 a week. We really appreciate all of you. A month, a month, a month. A month. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I meant a month. Sorry, wrong delivery. Um, Yes, a month, $2 a month. So as always, thank you so much. Love ya. Mean it. Wow, COVID-19 as a behavior analyst. So many interesting behaviors. At least I got all my positive reinforcers Like Doritos video workouts My phone in my bay Telling me I'm so cute Oh yeah, and Cardi B music on repeat Got all my drinks on hand Can I get a stimulus generalization With that white claw, the red wine, and the Get a raid for mornings after Since we can drink all day and drink all night What a strange time Or when I'm scrolling through Insta and I see One of my ex's cute photos I can respond with a like, a comment, or a DM Saying F you get a response generalization oh shit i'm out of toilet paper i need to get some asap that mo motivating operation coming at me so i hit five stores and finally find that one ply sitting in the corner just waiting for my bum 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 It's so crazy the value of toilet paper right now That EO establishing operation By seeing all the stores run out It seems like the most valuable thing Oh, and let's not forget to remember Stimulus classes during isolation I am formal, I'm laying on my bed in the pink pajamas I wore yesterday I'm temporal I wake up and check DMs then I have my coffee then I brush my teeth because that'll be the cleanest thing I do all day lastly I'm functional my notifications on my phone prompt me to respond back to my bed chest got all 
the time these days. Skinner would have loved to see all these behaviors evoking. I wonder if the next virus will see the same behaviors like that rush for toilet paper eggs and meat as we did this time. That operant learned behavior. Oh no, I have a tickle in my throat. Must be COVID-19 because my circular reasoning is always right. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 